converted Catholic priest, now evangelist, presents Contrast. Your comments and questions will be greatly appreciated. Permission is given to record and copy the entire message. And now, here is Richard Bennett. I remember with great ardor the desire I had to receive Christ Jesus physically as body, soul and divinity as a Roman Catholic boy when I made my first communion. It was with great ardor that I went to the communion rail and great reverence and devotion. It was the same when as a young boy in my teens I went to Mass every single day. I was approaching the communion rail and receiving Christ's body with great and ardent devotion. When I was studying to be a priest, we spent a considerable amount of time each day just wanting to be ready for communion. We started the day off with a half an hour of meditation. We would meditate on the things of the saints and the lives of the saints and different things that were held up to us as models and then we would would sing the divine office in Latin for about an hour and a half and then we would have the mass and then the high point of the mass was receiving communion it was a real special time in my life and that of very many other devout Catholics the high point was receiving Christ in the Eucharist and it was with disappointment that over the years that we didn't see any fruitfulness from it our lives continued the same and we didn't grow in any knowledge of Christ and very reluctantly we would admit that I'd like to read, for example, from a former nun who, in writing her testimony, said the following. Sophia Tekian, from my early days it was impressed upon me that Jesus founded the Roman Catholic Church and not only the Catholic Church, but that in it alone Christ was actually present, body and blood, in Holy Communion and that outside the church there was no salvation. And later in her story she states, In due time, despite my staunch Roman Catholic belief in the real presence in Holy Communion, I began to wonder if in fact one did get to know Christ better through frequent reception of the sacraments. Year after year, I saw no change in myself, in the sisters I lived with, or in the children we taught in CCD classes. Typical of so many of us that in spite of our great devotion, we sense an emptiness for all the many, many times we went to communion. The Catholic Church is emphatic that in the small white wafer there is contained the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ Jesus. I'd like to quote from the official catechism of the Catholic Church. 
by the consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner. His body and blood with his soul and divinity. That's paragraph 1413. Now it's necessary to trace the historical origins of the doctrine because it's not there in the early church. And so we've got to find out when did this doctrine come into the church. It is generally admitted in the historians that it was one key person who brought in this doctrine. His name was Pascasius Radbert and the year was 831. He published a treatise concerning the body and blood of Christ in which he held that the bread and wine used at the Lord's Supper were by consecration changed or converted into the body and blood of Christ Jesus. And that this body and blood on the altar was the same body and blood that the Virgin Mary had brought into the world. This new doctrine caused great astonishment in the Catholic Church at the time and uh, many were accepting it and still astonished at the teaching but there was some real adamant opposition to it by such as Rabbanus and Herabald and in particular the very famous Irishman Ioannis Scotus. Nonetheless the dogma or the, this new teaching, it had not yet become a dogma, this new teaching began to ferment and grow and become generally accepted in the Catholic Church. And then the moment came that Pope Innocent III at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 declared it a dogma of the Catholic Church, necessary for salvation. And if you did not believe this, you had fallen from the faith. So that was the climax of the growth of this tradition until it was declared by the Pope to be a dogma that was necessary for salvation. This medieval tradition still continues. I'd like to read again official words. This council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine that takes place the change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. That's paragraph 1376 of the Catechism. Now an example of the arrogance with which the normal or ordinary Catholic priest will write about this is found in this book, very famous 
the Jews here in New York, The Fate of Millions by John O'Brien. He speaks of um, Christ becoming incarnate again in the communion bread. I'd like to read his exact words. He said, While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altars as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. End of quotation, page 555-556 in this quite famous book, The Faith of Millions. The arrogance with which this priest can declare that Christ, the omnipotent God, would bow his head in humble submission to the priest's command to become incarnate in the communion bread. Now this is really an absurd teaching because if Christ Jesus were incarnate in the communion bread, if this really and truly was the body of Christ under the appearance of bread, and not really bread, that would be a living lie, totally unfitting for Christ Jesus. Over and above, if he were incarnate at the priest's command, then when a person receiving communion takes the communion and it goes into their stomach and dissolves, it becomes absorbed, and it no longer has the form of bread, Christ Jesus would be de-incarnated each time the species cease to be bread. And so the real insult that is involved in this, and I try to say this gently but really clearly because the lives of millions are involved in this. This is the centerpiece of Catholicism. They call it the summit of their worship. This is what the Mass every Sunday is about. Weddings have the Mass. Ordination ceremonies, baptism ceremonies, everything is around the Mass. And central to the Mass is taking communion. So we're talking about millions of lives. And this is what they are to believe. It is important to see just how the Church of Rome explains this change. They maintain that the transmutation of the bread and wine is the change of the outward appearances remaining the same. The inner substance has become Christ. So while it tastes like 
smells like, breaks like, feels like bread. It really is substantially the body of Christ. And the same for the blood that under the appearances of wine. So Christ, his divinity, his manhood, his bones, his nerves, his sinews, everything that make up the body of Christ is there, they say, in what looks like a piece of bread. So that is the transmutation that is declared to be the um, changing of the body and changing of the bread and wine into his body and blood. I'd like to read again the official words. The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In this most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood of together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really and substantially contained. That's paragraph 1374. Now, we have to understand that this means that Christ is holy and fully and in his entirety in the bread and in the wine. So that if you break the bread, Christ is in both parts. And if you keep breaking it, he's in all the parts. And if it becomes crumbs, Christ is in each crumb. And it's the same with each drop of blood. And so we read also from the Catechism, the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. That's paragraph 1377. In face of all of this, I think it is really refreshing and a joy to read the words of Christ Jesus himself in scripture. Christ Jesus said, If any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. We respect, with deep respect, the one body of Christ as it is in heaven. We respect him in the words of scripture who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him in the words of the apostle Peter and when Christ Jesus does physically come back on the earth he will be seen from east to west and the scripture says how he will be seen when he does come back physically as the lightning lighteneth out of one part of heaven and shineth unto the other part of under heaven, so shall the Son of Man be in his day. When Christ Jesus physically does come back, 
he will be seen by every eye. So the scripture is abundantly clear. The Catholic Church has absurdities built into the teaching. They say that the body of Christ can be in many places at different times. On a Sunday morning, on countless altars in the United States and across the world, the same Christ really physically present. And then in the one place, say for example a small pattern that they call where they have the communion bread, you could have six communion bread on one little pattern. So six Christs on one, in one place. So the absurdities built into the dogma are very real and have got to be faced because we are talking about the Creator and Lord. We are not talking about any good person. We're talking about Him who is the Creator and Lord of heaven and earth. And so to say that you take the communion bread and you break it and now there is here is the Creator and Lord and there is the Creator and Lord and each time the bread is broken we have another Creator and Lord and each time there is a drop of the consecrated wine poured out there is the Creator and Lord that is how serious this dogma is it's the zenith of absurdity and again we have to be refreshed and nourished by the scriptures the word was declared in scripture to the apostles and is written into your bible this same Jesus which was taken up from you into heaven so shall come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The same way as he was physically ascended into heaven, in the like manner he will physically come back. So the scripture is abundantly clear. Yes, Christ will come back physically, but in the same manner that he went into heaven. And the scripture says it triumphantly he will descend from heaven with a shout and the trump of God he comes back gloriously and not in some format that has him dehumanized have you ever thought of it that to say that Christ is in the inanimate form of bread is the spirit of the Antichrist. Because he is in a lesser format than the animals, so it is said. He has taken up his existence with his body, soul and divinity under the form of bread the Catholic Church says, and under the form of wine. This is lesser than anything in the animal world. And he cannot speak and cannot talk. 
He is the controllable bread and wine Christ in the Catholic Church. He has become controllable and his offices as priest, as king and as prophet have been, as it were, taken away from him. And he is now under the control of the priest. Lo, the priest speaks and he bows his head to become this inanimate form, the spirit of the Antichrist, to say that Christ Jesus could be debased to becoming lesser than even the animals, the inanimate form of bread and wine. And here we must really see that we have reached grave and bread, a graven image that purportedly takes the place of God. That is as serious as you can get. And it is to have a compassion and a regard for anybody who lives under this teaching. We read again the exact words of Rome. To begin with, this Holy Council teaches openly and straightforwardly professes that in the Blessed Sacrament of the Eucharist after the consecration of the bread and wine our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and man is truly, really and substantially contained under the appearances of these perceptible realities. And so the humiliation that he is brought to. He is brought to this humiliation of being an inanimate substance. And I think we must say the words of the prophet Isaiah. They make a graven image. They are all of them vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. The Catholic Church has endorsed and upheld graven bread. The Catholic Church has gone to great ends to try and explain just how the transmutation they call the transubstantiation takes place and it is most important to understand that their teaching still goes back to the one they consider their best theologian the doctor of the church Thomas Aquinas Thomas Aquinas wrestled with this in his Summa Theologica. He wrestled to see how he could explain the absurdities built into the teaching. And his conclusion was to use the physics of Aristotle, the pagan who had lived 300 years before Christ. 
and Aristotle in his physics explained physical matter as made up of substance and accident. And so Thomas Aquinas explains very clearly using the philosopher that it was merely the the accident that continue and the whole substance that upholds the accident is the substance of Christ's body and similarly the substance of Christ's blood under the appearances of wine and going to great lengths and in profuse writing he upholds the physics of Aristotle as a way out of the absurdities built into the dogma. The real eye-opener is to realize that the physics of Aristotle holds no water. It is not accepted in any manual of science. It is antiquated physics that is no longer accepted except as a historical strange teaching. Modern physics knows of electrons, protons, neutrons, as how substance is made up, atoms, protons, electrons, and how substance is made, how physical things are. There is no modern physicist who would ever resort to the physics of Aristotle. For the Catholic Church still uses it as the way to try and get beyond its illogicality. And so, even though this is contrary to reason, contrary to scripture, and contrary to the senses, when you actually see the Catholic Church continues to uphold this teaching. A summary of it could be 1375 of the Catechism by the conversion of the bread and wine into the body and blood, uh, into, the, the, into Christ's body and blood, becomes present in this sacrament. This is a denial of what Christ Jesus said. Christ Jesus said, do this in memory of me, and then went on to say, as often as you eat this bread. And the Apostle Paul, whosoever shall eat this bread, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread. The Apostle Paul explaining the words of the Lord, and saying after the words of institution, whoever shall eat this bread. The relative pronoun this or that refers only to the element of bread. Nothing else is implied. And so scripture tells you emphatically that after the word of consecration, the Catholics would call it the words of institution, it is bread. And that is the word of God in the scripture. Now, it gets more difficult, and I ask that you just stay with me because it becomes more difficult. The Catholic Church gives their word that 
this element is to receive the worship that is due to the one true God. And this is the explicit teaching of the Catholic Church. Quoting from Vatican II documents, there should be no doubt in anyone's mind that all the faithful ought to show to this most holy sacrament the worship which is due to the true God as has always been the custom of the Catholic Church. Nor is it to be adored any the less because it was instituted by Christ to be eaten. Even though the purpose was that it may be eaten, nonetheless it is to be adored. It is to be worshipped. And this is the way the Catholic Church lives. There are some convents of nuns who, day and night, in a rotation system, worship the bread as it is in the monstrance continually. The purpose of the order being the worship of the Eucharistic Christ. There are some Catholics who went to the Catholic Church to kneel before the tabernacle where they say where they know that this bread is housed. And then for the forty hours adoration where they put the host in a golden monstrance like the sun with golden things coming out from it. This is then put before the people to be worshipped. And you go down on your two knees when you come into the church and the element is exposed. In many countries we have the Eucharistic feast Corpus Christi where people go out on the streets and they grow petals and uh, flowers in front of the priest as he carries the host around the streets. That is not done very much here in the United States, but it's done a lot in the South American countries, in the Philippines, and in many of the European countries. Worshipping the bread, even in public procession. It is really, really difficult, and this is where we reach out to a precious Catholic person and just repeat the words of scripture. Christ said, take and eat. He did not say, worship and adore. His words were simple. Take and eat. And the Catholic Church worships and adores. To worship an element that was given to be consumed and to go into the stomach is the height of idolatry. It is giving what is due to the true God alone to a piece of bread. And this is how serious it is. It breaks my heart and it is difficult even to say but I did this even as I was finishing as a Catholic priest and before I left the priesthood and the church when I was convicted of sin and saved by God's grace, I looked at a map and started picking out the devout nations of the world and began seeing the immorality of those devout cities 
where many people go to communion. And to see then just how hand in hand that goes with immorality. It is really sad and is true here even in the United States that where we have devout reception of Christ Jesus, they say in the form of bread, it does not do anything. And the worship of the bread does not bring any blessing. God warned that he would bring iniquity down to the third generation of those who practice idolatry. And it is really sad when you see that that is the case. That if people practice idolatry, they reap the fruit of idolatry. Nonetheless, the Catholic Church is emphatic that the element is not only to be worshipped, but they say it has causative effects. There is power and grace coming from the element. And we read from paragraph 1393 of the Catechism. Holy Communion separates us from sin. They say it, Holy Communion, separates the person from sin. It is really sad that in the present day scandals in the United States that have been revealed in recent times by the Boston Globe and then right across the United States that many devout priests have been found guilty of pedophilia and gross homosexuality. Men who devoutly, continually take the Eucharist and they become secure in a false spiritual security and get lost in the lust of the mind and of the flesh. It is really sad and it should break somebody's heart to see that it is the exact opposite. That instead of separating from sin, a person gets a type of spiritual pride that they go to Mass so often and receive the elements so often and they get a false security of how spiritual they are and then how deep they can fall. They go even further in paragraph 1395 they say, by the same charity it enkindles in us, the Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. Rome here teaches her people to look to a physical thing as the means of conveying God's grace. Looking to a physical thing to give power. That is the age-old, the age-old pagan tradition that an idol has power. It is the very thing that Eve was tempted in the garden, that when you shall take of the fruit, 
your eyes would be opened, that a physical thing was to open her eyes to the knowledge of good and evil, that a physical thing can give life. The very first temptation in the book of Genesis and the age-old desire of the human heart to look to an idol to have power to give life. This is really sad and it is really important that we reach out to Catholics to give them the good news of a spiritual communion with Lord at the Lord's table whereby we come in contact with him as believers and drink deeply from him and remember with great gratitude his laying down of his life for his own. We commune spiritually with him and partake of him as we partake of the elements that symbolically represent him. We do it with a great love and desire and that is our heart's desire that we would have true believers who trust on Christ alone and believe on him alone and then partake of the Lord's Supper and drink deeply of his love as we remember him at the table that he has given to us. Now it is quite important that we look at John chapter 6 because John chapter 6 is the chapter where the Catholic Church has gone to try and justify her teaching. I remember in the very first parish where I was a priest, there was a classroom outside in the open air, outside my office. And day after day a lady was drilling the young boys and the fact that they were to receive Christ physically in communion and I knew that what she was teaching was in accord with the Catholic understanding of John chapter 6 so I think it is important to let chapter 6 speak for itself Christ Jesus is explicitly clear in John chapter 6 how it is to be understood Verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Christ is speaking spiritually about hungering and thirsting for him so that we may be satisfied by believing on him. For example, in verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He that believeth, he that believes on Christ will never thirst. Christ Jesus showing that it's a spiritual hunger and when you believe he says you will never thirst again making it clear that what he is talking about is faith in him 
And this is explicit because the very thing was brought up by the Jews. In verse 28, the Jews said unto him, What shall we do that we might do the work of God? Jews wanted to know what things were they to do so that they could be right with God. And Jesus answers, verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. The whole theme of the chapter is to believe on Christ Jesus. This is the meaning of the chapter. It is believing on him whom the Father sent. And this is, this is spelled out clearly in the, in the, um, in, in the different verses whereby the bread is spoken about as his flesh. For example, verse 51, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Christ saying clearly that he came here to give his flesh for the life of the world, that is to lay down his life as a substitute. He's speaking about the meaning of his life, his life given for the life of the world. And that was in his sacrifice. The centerpiece of the gospel that we believe that he did give his life for the world, his flesh for the world. This is his sacrifice, and that is the object of our belief. And in verse 53, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye shall have no life in you. It is so serious to thirst for him and believe on him that unless you devour him, as it were, become identified with that sacrifice by which he gave his life for the world, unless you become identified with that, you have no life in you. To hunger and thirst for him. For if you do not eat and drink in the sense that he has explained to believe on him, you have no life in you. Now it is not only clear from the principle of interpretation that Christ Jesus himself gave, but right through the Bible, it's forbidden to physically eat flesh and blood. For example, Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, Flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. People are not to take blood physically. It is commanded in the scripture. So Christ Jesus, in his own rule of interpretation, and in the way that he explains, his emphasis on the need to become identified with him in the deepest way possible, that we are absolutely obliged before him to believe on him. And it is the work of God, it is the grace of God. 
He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me and as I live by the Father so that he that eateth me shall live by me. As we become identified with Christ in this extremely personal way of trusting on him absolutely. It is rightly under the figurative language of eating and drinking. What is more personal to any one of us than to sit down for a meal? Nobody can eat in your place. Nobody can drink in your place. It's utterly personal. You must eat yourself. It is a personal act that each one of us does. Eating and drinking. And it is an apt, fitting, figurative language in which Christ Jesus should emphasize the importance of believing on him. And so we let this word speak for itself because it is absolutely clear. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The word that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Christ Jesus explaining utterly clearly that his words were to be understood spiritually. It is a difficult topic that we have been discussing and it is very difficult because our hearts are moved for precious Catholic people who have been taught a lie and whose lives have become enveloped in that lie. A summary of what we have been saying is by a former priest that is very clear in his testimony. It's in our book of 50 testimonies far from Rome near to God. Cipriano, Cipriano Jaimes Valdez. And he says the following. Catholic dogma declares that in every particle of the consecrated bread and in the consecrated wine, the body and blood of the divine Christ Jesus is fully present. What a falsehood. Christ said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. But the sacrilegious lying and deceit reaches the climax when the priest after the so-called consecration raises the bread and the cup while the people bow and strike their breasts and raise their eyes towards heaven and exclaim my Lord and my God this is idolatry worship of created matter God is not a piece of bread God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The words of Cipriano, a former Catholic priest, explaining in a few words where Catholics live and where we desire to reach them that they would see what Christ himself said and that it is a memory of him and it is 
believing on him and it is trusting on him. It is amazing how many millions have died in the course of history during the 600 years and more of the persecution of believers by the Church of Rome we have had millions of Bible believers tortured and burned at the stake many of these millions were people who would not bow down to the bread and would not accept that Christ Jesus was physically present and they gave their lives, first of all, in being tortured and then being burnt at the stake. And so, it is something for which true believers have given testimony throughout history. One remarkable example of this was in the year 1488 into 1489 when Pope Innocent VIII sent out his papal legate Cayetano to give an option to the Valdois. The Valdois were the valley people in northern Italy and southern France who had been true Bible believers going back to apostolic times. They always believed in Christ personally and they celebrated the Lord's Supper as a spiritual remembrance of him in figurative language as is explained in scripture and Pius VIII sent out his legate with an army to give them the option that they come to the Catholic Church worship the bread and receive communion or be butchered and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of those believers were slaughtered like sheep for their faith in the true meaning of the Lord's table and this is really important it is with great distress in my heart that I read of many present-day leading evangelicals who have made the Lord's table in this matter to be merely a small rubric that follows on their declaration that Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The famous document written in 1997, The Gift of Salvation, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, after telling a lie about conferred justification and that Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ, at the very end speaks about other questions. Quotation, we recognize that there are necessarily interrelated questions that require further and urgent exploration. Among these questions are the meaning of baptismal regeneration and the Eucharist. And they go on to explain about Mary and other things. A mere rubric at the end of a document to make it look as if it wasn't of much consequence while it totally obliterates 
the message of the gospel. And this is the age where we want men and women, like the men and women of history, to be willing to die for their faith and have the love and compassion of Christ to reach out and explain the true meaning of the Lord's table and to lead those in darkness and the shadow of death into the true light of the gospel. And that is, I think, most important. It is most important if there's anybody here present or anybody viewing who still has not devoured Christ by hungering and thirsting for him and truly believing that he gave his flesh for the life of the world. If there is somebody who has not known that identity by which they have said, Yes, Lord, I believe on you. I become identified with you. Your life is my life. Your death is my death. Your ascension, my ascension. I am, Lord, accepted in you as I trust in you alone. If you are not there, this is the true meaning of what Christ Jesus was saying in John chapter 6. The urgency of knowing that his flesh is given for life. If you do not have eternal life and that security that you are in the Lord and accepted in him. It is to cry out to him for his divine grace and to realize the emptiness of trusting on any physical thing or any symbol and trust on the person. What does the scripture say of his relationship to the Father? It is beautiful and exquisite. In the book of Hebrews, Christ's relationship is explained as the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is Christ as he is gloriously in heaven, his glorious body, his soul and divinity in heaven. Trust on him alone and know that joy of having everlasting life in him. And remember the promise. Christ Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you do not feel convicted that you're a sinner, you say, well, I've brought up my children and I'm, you know, I'm fairly good and you know, I've always tried to be good, and you do not see the perfection and holiness of God, the Holy Spirit is given to reprove, to convict you of sin. And ask the Lord to show you and he will graciously show you your condition. And then it's the same Lord that graciously gives you the grace to believe. And you say, yes, Lord, I accept. I accept 
Christ Jesus, the bread of life. I am identified as I trust only in his perfect life, only in his bloodshed. And then that security and joy of knowing that you thirst no more because you have believed on him. And that is our message. And that is the necessity that we have come to you this evening. And I ask that you see that it's all of God's grace. And we say to the immortal and only true God, be praised, worship, glory and honor. And may many souls be saved and may God be glorified now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Praise God. Thanks for listening. If the Lord touches you, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website at www.bereanbeacon.org. Goodbye and God bless you. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.